good to see all of you today. I, we're, we have folks who travel during Christmas and those who suspend their travel to New Year's and so they're traveling. We have a good number of folks who are sick. Uh, I was hearing some coughs and some weaker voices uh, even as we were singing. Um, I was in that number and uh, but grateful to be here. Um, those of you uh, who know me uh, know that I love to sing. Um, I don't sing well, but I love to sing. And so when I'm kind of croupy like I am now, it's hard to get it out, and I have to keep stopping, and that's frustrating. And uh, but it's great to hear you sing, uh, and uh, I appreciate you being here. Uh, we want to uh, be reminded again of those who are not with us today. Uh, as I said, some traveling, some sick. Uh, reach out to them during the course of the week, if you will, and let them know that they were missed, that you care about them. I uh, hope your holidays were good. I know some of you were sick. Um, no, Booney was sick on Christmas Day. Manish and his family were struggling. Good to see you back. And others of you were kind of under the weather. And um, But uh, I hope your, uh, hope your time with your family was good if you were able to spend time with them and that uh, uh, glad that uh, you were encouraged during the season. If you have your copies of scripture, if you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Uh, the title of our message today is continuing with our theme, Heaven's Hope. Uh, Heaven's Hope, Jesus Saves Israel. Heaven's Hope, Jesus Saves Israel. Uh, as we have for uh, the last four weeks, I want us to uh, read the whole chapter. I hope that's been helpful to you as you've been able to track along and um, hear God's Word read, but then uh, really grappling with the text as we have. Uh, most of our songs have been centered around that, which was easy for us during the uh, holiday season and uh, even today being reminded as we sing Hope of the Ages, that he uh, is David's true son. Uh, the, 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 as we will hear, the, the shoot off of the stump of Jesse, the root of the stump of Jesse, growing into a branch that is held up uh, as a banner for the nation of Israel, and then ultimately as a banner for the whole world. Let's read, follow along. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall plague over the whole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, uh, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he'll lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria from the, for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Will you pray with me? Father, we're grateful today to be able to come in the last day of this calendar year. Coming together as the people of God to look to you, your word, to hear from you. Father, thank you for having spoken to us already as we have considered uh, the, the triumph of Christ, this one that you have sent and given to us, your Son, only begotten Son, who is given to us that we may receive the adoption as sons and daughters, be made a part of your family. Father, would you speak to us even now and help us to see how our hope is tied to the hope of Israel, heaven's hope. And help us to see and know that Jesus saves and he alone saves in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of before we look at the text this morning, I think it'll be helpful to be reminded that Isaiah is writing prophetically. And I, and I know that we know that he is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. There are three things that we should keep in mind. First, that the prophet spoke for God. I want you to think about that a moment. The prophet spoke for God. In other words, God gave his message to his prophets to speak to the people. Now let's just, if you will, we're, just, we're not going to go deeper into Isaiah, but just take your Bibles while you have them open and just look. The Lord comes and begins to speak to Isaiah uh, through visions. And then you'll notice in uh, chapter 7 we hear, And the Lord said to Isaiah, if you look over in chapter 8, Isaiah says again, And the Lord said to me, and then in Isaiah 8 verse 11, And the Lord spoke thus to me, and we are continuing in what God has spoken to him. So God spoke to Isaiah, and then Isaiah speaks to the people. That's important. Because these are not the words of a man. These are not the visions of a man, but they are the words of God. 
as in Isaiah's case, the Lord did communicate with him through visions, and, and then he also spoke to him. I don't know whether he spoke to him in an audible voice or not. Uh, we only have to go back to Matthew's gospel and go to the Mount of Transfiguration when the voice came down and thundered from heaven and Peter, James, and John heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God may have spoken to him in an audible voice, but the Spirit of God may have come upon him and impressed upon his heart and his mind in such a way that it was without question that this was from God and he already knew that that message had to be delivered to the people. I don't think it's important how the word came to him. What is important is, is that it's God's word and we know that it's God's word because everything that Isaiah said came to be. Everything that God told him to say that would take place, took place. But we need to remember that as we're looking at our text today. We also need to remember as well that when we are talking about a prophetic word, not only are we talking about just a proclamation of the truth, but we are also looking at and talking about, in most cases with the prophets of the Old Testament, a foretelling of something that would come about. And in that foretelling, sometimes that foretelling was to something that would take place in the, the, the original audience's lifetime. They would see it. They would know that the prophet said what was going to take place, and it took place. But we also know, as we've been reminded of in Isaiah, that at times that foretelling was for something that would come hundreds and even thousands of years later. In fact, Christ was 700 years in coming after Isaiah had promised and told them that this one would come and would be raised up as a banner for everyone to look to. But even as we have seen in our text already, and we'll see again today as we concentrate on those last six verses, some of those things have yet to come true. Some of those things have yet to be fulfilled. They will but they have yet to be fulfilled. So even in looking at the words of the prophets, we are reminded that what is said will be, will be, but it'll come about in God's timing. And it'll come about when God has determined it will come. And when we read the prophetic messages, we also begin to understand that we don't know the who and the what and the when of the fulfillment of those things that are yet to come. In fact, there are whole theological systems and whole theological camps that are built around trying to determine the who, what, and when all these things will take place. Is that important? It may be important. But we can't know what we can't know. What we do know is what is said will take place. And we know that everything ultimately rests in Jesus. I want us to look at these last six verses closely today. Let's look at them again, beginning in verse 11. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he'll lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria from the remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Been dealing with this text now for well over a month. Reading it every day. We've read it every time we have met here. One of the questions that has continued to surface for me, and that is, how does the blessing and hope of the Messiah, this, this one, this, this shoot off of the stump of Jesse, how does that impact or extend to Israel ethnically? Now I want to tell you why I think that's important is that when we are looking at Israel, are we talking about Israel in the larger context of the world, or did, in fact, when God called Abraham out and said that he would bless him and that he would be a blessing, is that blessing of Abraham and that covenant really a significant covenant, or was it just so large and vast that it just consumed the whole world? And we know it had global implications. We know that because we are not ethnic Israel as far as I know. We are not of that descent. We are a part of the church. We are Israel and part of Israel in the sense that we are people of faith, those of us who have trusted in Christ. But I just kept pondering this back and forth. Why at the end of this, after last week in verse 10, it seems that everything was directed toward the nations. Look back in verse, verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. It seems to be that there is this all-encompassing, wide-sweeping work of this one that will be held up as a banner that will be held up and lifted up as Jesus said that he would be lifted up. But then we come down to verse 12 and we see that he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. The question is, is this directed toward ethnic Israel or is this still talking about the church? And I mentioned this to you. You say, why would that be important? It, it would be important because Isaiah's message had to be speaking a word of hope to Israel because his prophetic word is coming to them. God is speaking to them and giving them hope and letting them know that what they are dealing with at that point in time, while they are dealing with their enemies, and those enemies have been directed toward them because of judgment, the judgment from God on them for their sin, that in this case, that there was hope for them. And in that sense, was that hope tied to that covenant that God had made with Abraham, calling them out and making them 
his people. I'll tell you, I don't have the answers to all of that. What I do know is that it seems that this portion of the text is directed toward ethnic Israel. And we need, and I believe we can find that out by virtue of the fact, look here in verse, uh, in, in verse 11, he is looking for the remnant of the remains of his people, and then he singles those out, the banished of Israel in verse 12. And then notice he goes and he speaks of Judah and Ephraim, the two kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom being Ephraim, the southern kingdom being Judah. And he mentions that. And then when he closes this portion out, when we get to verse 16, it says, and there, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, it was pointing them back again to a deliverance that had occurred. Now let's look at the text in verse 11. In that day, what day? Well, as we looked at and talked about last week, uh, it seems to be in the day of Jesus' work, in the day of his work, and it's looking at a whole age and a period of time where the fulfillment of all that he is going to do is going to take place. And we saw last week, and we saw the week before, and we see even today that we know that we await still the consummation of all this because of all the things that are taking place that have not taken place. What has not taken place? Well, in the truest sense, Judah and Ephraim have not com been completely unified in the way that we see that they're unified here in verse 13. For the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. And Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not uh, harass Ephraim. In other words, there is not this rich sense of unity even now in ethnic Israel. Look at the changes that are coming and it would take place. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together uh, they shall plunder the people of the east and they shall put their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. They're not experiencing that kind of peace and that kind of power and rule and reign over people. So we're looking ahead to something that has not yet taken place and it will take place for them in their country, in their place. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What a word of hope would it have been whenever they were being under oppression to be reminded that one day that there was going to be the justice of God as we've talked about before. And in that justice, they would be in a place where all of their enemies would be dispelled and they would experience unity and peace. When? We're reminded again, as Adam pointed us to it, it's in verse 9. When? When the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth that has an impact on them as a nation and as a people. Look at what else he says there in verse 11. That the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Will extend his hand yet a second time to do what? To deliver Israel. To deliver Israel. 
He's going to extend his hand a second time. When was the first time? Well, I think we can point back to verse 16 and find out when he is pointing back to as the first time. The first time when Israel came up out of the land of Egypt. You know, it's been uh, over the course of the last few years, uh, if you kind of follow along the news, it's not an uncommon thing to hear Israel's leaders now even talk about their, the promise from God and their exodus from Egypt and coming back to that land that had been given to them. They have not forgotten that story. There's a lot that they have forgotten. There's a lot that they have missed. There is a lot that they deny. What they do not deny, they do not deny that in their history, in their early history as a people, that they were enslaved in Egypt and that they were delivered from Egypt and brought to that land that had been promised to them. And they claim and hold on to that promise. Now, I'm mentioning this not to talk about Israel's current state. I'm, that's not that that's not important, but that isn't the purpose of this. It's to help us see and understand that what God had promised, He fulfilled, and He was going to fulfill it to the very end. Now, how does that help us? Well, it helps us know that what God promises, as we said last week, God keeps. He does. He fulfills. And though some of this has not been fulfilled yet, it will all be fulfilled. Look there at verse 11 again. He's talking about a remnant. So what do we know from that? We know that it is a group of people, but it is not everyone. I was thinking this past week, is there... Is do, do we find any place in Scripture where Israel, as a nation and as an ethnic group, will all be saved? Well, the answer to that is, is I think Scripture points to us and tells us that that will not be the case. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. Prophet Ezekiel writes, the soul who sins shall die. This is a word from God. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, or the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be put upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be put upon themselves. In other words, there is going to be judgment. Not all will be saved, not all of Israel. And this word from Ezekiel, we take and find application for it for us. But that word that was coming from Ezekiel was directed to Israel, was directed to Israel. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, talking about the, uh, the archangel, archangel Michael, uh, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a, a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. This was coming to Daniel to tell Daniel about what he could expect that would come in the future. Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, he was speaking, he said, You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? In other words, there were those who were going to be sentenced to eternal damnation and sentenced to hell. And then Paul writing in Romans chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 said, But for those who are self-seeking, 
and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And then he says this, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why is that important? Well, it's important that we don't get confused that somehow or another in the course of this, we recognize that God's word of hope and this banner that was held up, Jesus Christ himself, was being held up in front of Israel. I think to help us with this, we may be benefited to look over in Romans chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles there, flip over to Romans chapter 11. And I'm not, I'm, I want us to read it, not here to teach Romans 11, but I think it gives us some help when we're talking about this remnant that Isaiah is prophesying about, and the Apostle Paul comes back and deals with it. And this is how he deals with it. Look at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, to better understand that, we'd have to, we'd have to look closely at chapter 9 and chapter 10. But, but Paul is looking here in Romans. He's laying out this theological treatise. And he comes, up, he comes to this question. He says, has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means. What people is he talking about? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about ethnic Israel. Has God rejected them? Has he moved on to the Gentiles and in doing so, has he rejected them and pushed them away forever? He said, by no means. And here's the evidence that he gives for it. He said, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God has not abandoned Israel, and I know that he hasn't abandoned Israel because he saved me, and I am an Israelite. I am from Abraham. I am from, that, from, from Benjamin. I'm from that tribe. I am ethnic Israel, and he has not abandoned me because he has saved me. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what God, but what is God's reply to him? And remember what God's reply to Elijah was? He said, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So also, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's pointing back and using what, he, what, what God had told Elijah. Paul is pointing back to that, saying, and we know that God has a remnant that he will save of Israel, and it is a work of God's grace. God has chosen them by his grace. He knows them by his grace. They have been determined to be saved by God's grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it's written. And then he goes on to say, and God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes, that would not see, and ears that would not hear, 
down to this very day. In other words, Paul says there are still those that are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those that are turning away from this banner that had been held up in front of them. They are looking away from the cross. They have abandoned that. And then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Almost as if to say, let the blessings that God has poured upon them, this, these blessings that God has poured upon Israel, these other blessings now become their stumbling block because this is what they focus on. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, Paul, Paul was saying, did they, did, it have, did they reject him so they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's what we were pointing back to last week as we looked at verse 10. That, this, that Christ is lifted up on the cross and the nations are looking to him. And they, they are, as we sing, they, the desire of the nations, they are pursuing him and going to him for life and for salvation. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, God has not abandoned them. There is a remnant that he is going to save. If you look back over there in Isaiah chapter 11, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to do what? To recover this remnant. To recover this remnant. Paul writes, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm speaking to the Gentiles. I'm speaking to you inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, what will it mean for them? It will mean ultimately the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from being spiritually dead, but the, but the actual resurrection from the dead where they will assemble and be assembled around the throne of God. And if the dough offered... As first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, Paul's talking to the Gentiles, he said, if, a, if, if one of these branches were broken off, and you are grafted in among them, and share now of the nourishment of, this, of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off. Broken off, why? Because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. You stay. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, talking about this remnant, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Listen, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, remember the choosing, the grace of God. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they also have now been disobedient in order that by, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And you're saying, I cannot understand that. And then Paul says what? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. I want us to hear that in the context because Paul is talking about the remnant of Israel and the way that God will save that remnant. Who is the one who saves that remnant? That's the question. Verse 12 of Isaiah 11 tells us, he will raise a signal for the nations. In other words, Christ will be raised up and will assemble the banished of Israel. Jesus saves Israel. Jesus saves Israel. Verses 13 and 14, we see the change and the transformation that takes place in those that are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've mentioned it just a moment ago, what takes place. There is unity not just unity in Israel, but unity among all the people of faith. Look in Ephesians chapter 2 just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13. Well, back back up and look at verse 11. Chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, 
alienated and separated from those promises that rest in the covenant that God made with them that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's pointing to. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one as broken down in his flesh, dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there is some inclusion here in verses 13 and 14 in this changed people, a people changed by God. There is peace, there is unity. The separation is gone. The hostility is gone. The jealousy is gone. The hatred is gone. And the enemy is destroyed. Look in verse 14 and 15. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites and shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, which is the Nile River, and will wave his hand over the river, the Euphrates, and with his scorching breath and will strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals." What is it that Isaiah is communicating? What is this word of hope that God is giving to his people? What he is telling them is, is that there is nothing that will stand as an obstacle between me and you and your redemption. Nothing. Everything of pride of these nations everything that has served as barriers from you being able to come back, whatever those things are, all of those obstacles are going to be removed. Who removes them? The Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're here. If we have trusted in Christ, just know that there is nothing that will keep you. Nothing that will keep you from enjoying the fulfillment of the covenant that God has established with you for eternal life. Doesn't matter how hard things are here. Doesn't matter how difficult things are here. Doesn't matter what kind of obstacles that seem to be in your path and in your way now. All of those obstacles have been removed and will be removed ultimately in Christ. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, know that He is the one who removes all the obstacles We read about it earlier in our assurance of pardon. He destroyed sin and death. He has removed all the obstacles that are now keeping you from being in the presence of God, keeping you from life, keeping you from hope. And then notice in verse 16, 
and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. In other words, there is now a path in Christ to God and to the fulfillment of his promise of hope. We've had an opportunity over these last five weeks to consider heaven's hope. I jotted down three things that I want to remind us of and I've mentioned today and we have mentioned them in various ways over the last weeks. One, Israel's hope and our hope is grounded in the saving work of Christ Jesus. He is their Savior. He is ours. He is their King. He is ours. The only way that ethnic Israel, the only way that you, the only way that I, the only way that if the Lord tarries those who come behind us, the only way my grandchildren, the only way your children, the only way your great-grandchildren, the only way of anybody in this world can have eternal life is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, heaven's hope is a gift of grace. Heaven's hope is a gift of grace. We read about it this morning in Romans chapter 11, but we have stated it each week. The hope that God has sent us in Christ is a demonstration of his grace toward us before the foundation of the world, before there was ever an earth, before you were ever born, before Adam was ever created, before any of that, it was determined in eternity that God would extend grace, would give his son, that was planned before there was ever a creation. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a second thought. It wasn't a dilemma to a problem that somehow or another that God was scratching his head and how in the world am I going to redeem these people now? None of that. God had planned to show grace in Christ. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because the spotlight now is on the glory of the grace of God. And it was in his grace that he would be most magnified and glorified. So, well, I don't understand all of that. That was the reason why at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, Paul wrote... His wisdom, his knowledge, and what he has is unsearchable. It doesn't make sense to us that he would establish a covenant with the people, bless them, have them reject him so that the rest of the world could come to him and know him so that those who are believers coming out of the rest of the world can now evangelize and even make jealous those who had rejected him so that they come to him. It doesn't make sense in our economy. But Paul said it makes perfect sense with God establishing and giving 
grace in Christ. It's incredible. And then we just mentioned, and the last thing, is every obstacle to heaven's hope is removed. Every obstacle. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, the only obstacle that is there and it can is removed in him because he gives faith to believe. The only obstacle is your sin and your unbelief. And heaven's hope shouts to the world, turn to the cross and believe. Turn to the cross and believe. Heaven's hope is a sure thing. I want you to have it. I want you to experience it. I want our community to have it and experience it. I want us to enjoy it. I want us to celebrate it. I want us to give thanks for it. And heaven's hope is Christ. As we sang earlier, turn your heart toward him and come and adore him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even today as we look ahead and survey the past, all we see of you is just great hope and grace. Hope and a grace that saves and heals. Hope and a grace that destroys enemies. Hope and a grace that can't be bound and tied up, can't be sold, can't be purchased. But a grace that you give that overcomes every obstacle that would keep us from you. Father, a hope that ensures that we will be with you A hope that ensures us for all eternity to be before you. Nothing standing in our way of you but to be under your banner and your rule and your reign and your love and your tenderness and your care and your protection. Father, awaken our souls to it. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.